Sometimes in life we just suffer. Sometimes it's from being totally withdrawn. Or so much stress that we are totally anxious. Or so tired that we are totally burnt out. But our current position is not our final destination. No, indeed. There's hope. So whether it's your personal life, your career, your relationship, your business, or your job, we say there's reason to believe again. And we present from Andy's personal development, the breakout room. It's the place for health, happiness, and prosperity. Stay tuned for more. Okay, so we are live in the breakout room, and this is Andy of Andy's Personal Development. Today, we have a very special episode that is going to give us some vital information about life's traumas and how we can overcome some of the things that we have struggled with in the past that have been very traumatic and mind-boggling for us to even understand and comprehend how it happened to us in the first place. So without further ado, I want to introduce our guest. Her name is Rose Chant, and she's the founder of a recovery coaching business called Recovery coaching with Rose Chen and she'll tell you why she called it that and her experience and her reality as she came to that conclusion. So welcome Rose, how are you doing today? Hi Andy, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for asking. We are really glad to have you on and we thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to be with us today on the breakout room. We really appreciate the effort. Thank you. <laughs> shy, but she'll get used to it in a little bit. All right. So here we go. I want to start from the beginning, Rose, because I believe that your experience, the foundation of your experience, is basically when you were at that 14-year-old age. And you had that experience that probably you never saw coming. Um, you were not prepared for. And it is not something that if somebody had told you, you would say, ah, yeah, maybe, maybe not. But then again, when it happened, the reality of it was really traumatic. Tell us about that accident that took place, that vehicular accident that took place at age 14 that led you basically to where you are now. Well, um, as a typical 14 year old, I used to like to party with my friends and drink and hang out and uh, we thought we were invincible really. <laughs> and, um, one night when we were drinking, we decided to go for a drive and uh, the driver um, insisted that he only had two drinks, but still, um, and it was a rainy night, the car hydroplaned into a telephone pole and I, I got a traumatic brain injury from the event. <clears throat> um, it was it was really scary when I woke up because I was in a coma for a few weeks, almost a month, 
And when I woke up, I was strapped to the bed in a hospital and I had no idea what happened. And my, me and my family just looked really freaked out when I opened my eyes. So they said, you, you were in an accident and, and uh, we honestly didn't think you were going to wake up. And the doctors said that if I did wake up, I would have little to no cognitive ability. But um, clearly that's not the case because <laughs> here I am yeah. years later. Exactly. It was, it was pretty crazy. Uh, I, I couldn't walk. I had to relearn how to walk. I had to relearn how to talk. And um, for the first few days, everything I saw was double. The, so four, the, all four lobes were substantially impacted in the accident. <clears throat> so it affected everything. So it, it was a long journey to get better, a long, long journey. Yeah. And yet here we are, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, Rose, I'm going to make this as real as I possibly can for you and for our listeners and supporters. Now that you are speaking about it, uh, after that period of time, is there any part of you that get that feeling that takes you right back to that place and you are relieved now that you have overcome it and that you have learned so much and become stronger and better. But how did you actually feel just now, just speaking about it? How real was that for you? Oh, as real as if it was yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. That situation, that was 15 or 16 years ago. And it's still, it's still something I think about every single day. And it still feels very real, especially when I'm driving on rainy days. Yeah. Yeah, my partner always puts his hand on my leg and it lowers my anxiety. It's still something I carry with me, and and the long term impacts of a brain injury and the accident in the in and of itself. Um, because I still struggle with chronic pain in my neck from the accident and chronic headaches all the time, and fatigue is a huge issue. So still running a business and being a mom and doing all that with those issues. It's, it's a reminder every day. It's, it's taken with me every day. I'm big on seatbelts and not drinking and driving. I always tell everybody, exactly. you never happen to you. <laughs> exactly. So, so tell us Rose, with regards to uh, what you are doing now in terms of being a recovery coach, was that experience the catalyst, the main reason for you deciding, you know what? I need to be able to transfer what I've experienced into something so real that it can help other people and bring some level of semblance uh, of reality and normalcy to their lives after you have gone through what you've been through. Yes, definitely. It was something I drank at and used at all through my teen years because I was very much in self-pity thinking why did this happen to me and comparing myself to my peers everyone else was doing really good in school but I wasn't and blamed my brain injury I didn't take in the fact that I wasn't studying very hard <laughs> I just used it as a crutch for a while and um, once I got sober at 23 and took a look back at that event with my sponsor and other mentors in the program it became very real to me that, you know, I, though there was a little bit of self-pity, I still worked my butt off every day and 
a lot of people would have given up and um, I didn't. And as I met more girls in recovery that went through traumatic events and just wanted to put their hands up in the air and give up. And I kept encouraging them, you know, you got this, you got this, this one, this situation doesn't define you. And then seeing that light go off in their eyes and then them pushing through it. And they're just doing amazing now. You wouldn't believe it. I'm so proud of them. Just those experiences over and over again made me realize that what I want to do with my life is help other girls or or men <laughs> in recovery get their life back. Because most of us in recovery have gone through some big traumas and it's getting over those to help us stay sober. Uh, thanks for sharing, Rose. I am touched by the passion that you you speak of your experience. And you said something there about a philosophy that we have in personal development where it says, don't think of life as something that is happening to you. Think of life that is something that is happening for you. And I think in addition to that, we should not think of our experiences, no matter how tough they may be, as something that creates a victimization level for us. You started mm -hmm. to feel self-pity and you started to blame yourself and you went into recession and you went to drugs and so on. But the thing about it is that you saw yourself as a victim, mm -hmm. a student of an experience. And if you had known before, that is how you would have looked at it, the perspective. It reminds me of a gentleman by the name of Martin Salamat. Uh, he was one of our guests on our show. And he said that when he was at the age of 10, he had a very traumatic experience where he saw his brother, who was five or six years old, being killed by a bus. The bus driver was innocent. He couldn't see the young man. He was so short and just ran across the path of the bus and he couldn't see it. And he didn't recover rose from that incident until he was 50 years of age. So it took him 40 years to get closure, to get relief and to get release. And the, the majority of his life had been like a prison. Mm. How did you find the strength to go through the therapy that you went through that led to your recovery? Because you had to learn to walk and talk all over again. How deep did you have to dig to get that strength to go through that therapy? Uh, I think it was, I don't want to sound crazy, but <laughs> I think that it was, it was God, you know, it was God and it was my family. I uh, am very blessed with a very close family. My mom and my sister and I are inseparable and same with my grandparents, my uncles, my cousins. They were at my side constantly. And and they're all military too. So the do not quit is kind of <laughs> cemented into my brain. Yeah. <laughs> so, and they were with me every day, helping me through the, oh, what's it called? Physiotherapy. Yes. I remember once when I was walking down the hallway and I was holding on to my stepdad's arm and then my grandfather's called to me down the hallway to tell me something. And I started walking by myself and looked back and responded. And we all just celebrated because it was the first time I looked back and walked at the same time. Uh, yeah, yeah. All good. Yeah. yeah the support of my family. And they've helped me through my addiction as well. They, it was them almost kicking me out of the family that was the catalyst to start getting sober. But 
but they've always been by my side always yeah wonderful wonderful and it's amazing that people understand that you always have to have folks around you who can help you maintain a certain level of accountability for yourself so that you become responsible for your actions and also to believe in yourself that you can actually do it. How difficult was it for you to get away from the addiction? What were some of the things mentally that you had to go through and emotionally you had to struggle with? But eventually it's like you said, you had enough. You reached a point, a point where you realize enough is enough. What happened? What was the experience like to get to that point? and then take it to the next level where you entered into therapy and decided you needed to get better because you needed to do better with your life. Um, I tried many times to quit. I started drinking when I was 12, actually. It was a different traumatic incident that started that, but um, it was the accident that made me realize that I had a problem because the neuropsychologist told me, if you drink, you could die. And I actually struggled not to drink. I had a hard time. I only stayed sober for six months with impending death over my head, keeping me sober. And, and after those six months, I thought, oh, I'll just give it a try a little bit. And I, I'm lucky to be alive because he said it would swell my brain. I don't know all the neuro terms but um so it was when I was 14 that I started to try to quit and I didn't actually until I was 23 so there was lots of interventions my family giving me support counseling all the things but I don't know what happened when I was 23 again I I think it was a higher power of some sort because there was many times that you know I thought that I would lose everything but I just kept using but that one fateful day um, I was about to be evicted. My mom was just done with me and my accounts were going to be frozen. It just, and I honestly couldn't get high anymore. Like yeah. no matter how much I used, I couldn't get high anymore. Yeah. My mom just looked me in the eyes and said, Rose, are you ready? Are you ready to go to rehab? <laughs> and then I just said, yes, I am so ready. I'm so ready to go. Yeah. And when I went, I was just, I don't know what happened. Something just shifted in me and I was just ready. They even told me you know you're gonna have to give up the cocaine and you can never drink again and i said okay that makes sense i i'm done wow. and just jumped in with both feet I, I didn't believe in god at the time and they said you need to find a higher power so i was like yes. okay i started talking to nothing <laughs> until i felt a connection <laughs> um but yeah <clears throat> sorry i feel i'm coming down with the cold but um yeah, I feel like it was some kind of higher being that just said it was time, you know? Yeah, fascinating. I, I really thank you for sharing with us, Rose. What I want to look at is you said something here, and, and I'm going to read it. Um, there is no such thing as healing trauma completely. I want you to explain that to the people that are listening or those who are going to hear the podcast or see the podcast later. Because I think sometimes there's a false perception that you, you totally get over the stuff that you've been struggling with. But you're alluding to something that says to us, you get better at managing yourself. 
but there's mm. always that little stigma of it that would raise its ugly head ever so often and remind you that you don't need to go back to that place. How do you get people to understand that it does not completely go away, but you have to learn continually to better manage yourself, grow in confidence, and do all that is necessary to get your values now aligned to a higher and better place where your lifestyle can remain something that you could be proud of. Just, just go into details of how that happens for us. Wow, that is a powerful question. Um, what I meant by uh, not healing completely is that it becomes a part of you. Whatever trauma you experience, it becomes a part of you. And we can choose to do what I used to and use at it and use it as an excuse to treat people badly or, oh, this happened to me. You know, I just, wouldn't you feel like this? Wouldn't you hide in a dark room? And most of us would say, yeah, I, I would. <laughs> and I would hide in a dark room, but you don't have to stay in that dark room. Yeah. You know, there is ways around it and there is trauma therapy and they're coming up with fantastic new methods in counseling these days. And it just takes the power to look at that place it's scary to look at that place but you don't have to do it alone you could do it with a coach you could do it with a counselor you could do it with your best friend your parents you could yeah and once you look at it it starts to heal and it starts to heal but I feel that there's a biological response no I know that there's a biological response yeah. to trauma and that's what you have to live with is it's going to come up you know, certain triggers, you know, the rain when I'm driving, I've done so much therapy around the accident, but still when it's raining and I'm driving, I get scared. But my partner and I noticed that when he puts his hand on my leg, it helps. When I'm alone, I take deep breaths. Sometimes I pull over to take another breath and then I start driving again. You know, it doesn't have to control me. I honestly didn't get my license until I was 27 <laughs> because of the accident, but I got it right. And that's, what's important. So always the pats on the back, um, and with sexual trauma, that's something that definitely doesn't go away. And that's when being honest is so important, being honest with where you're at and saying, listen, it's usually around the anniversaries of the date that things come up. So knowing that, being ready for that, being prepared. Um, yeah, there's a lot of preparation that goes into continuing your life after trauma but it all starts with therapy yes i'm big on therapy you know i i was going to become a counselor myself but that's a long story that we don't probably have time for. <laughs> <laughs> amazing rose here's the thing that i'm intrigued by we we don't realize how powerful some trigger moments can be you talk mm -hmm. about the breathing um, your partner putting his arm on your leg and you calming down and sometimes having to pull over. How do you recognize that these things are things that you can do on a regular basis to help you? Um, is it something that came to you by accident or was it some sort of study that you did and you got that information and you decided, yeah, you know what, I'm going to try this. How did it happen for you? Trial and error, yeah. honestly. Um, 
deciding that I don't want to be a victim anymore and deciding to look for solutions rather than continuously looking at the problem. Uh, <clears throat> like going back to the hand on the leg, we talked about that a lot. But um, uh, that was because my partner was asking one day when we were driving, he said, you know what, you're a little scary when it's raining. <laughs> Is there anything I can do to make this more comfortable for you? Yeah. And then uh, I thought about it and I said, oh, you know what? When you put your hand on my leg, I do tend to calm down a bit. So maybe try that. And, you know, trusting my body also for other things that come up. I just notice um, certain things that help, um, like extra naps. Yeah. When I'm feeling extra triggered, I get extra tired, right? Because it takes my body more energy to keep myself calm. So I just take extra naps. Naps are big when you have a traumatic brain injury. You need lots of naps. Yeah. So yeah, honestly, trial and error. I, I apologize. Something happened out in my other room that I heard and I got distracted halfway through responding. So I hope I answered your question. That's all right. Yeah, I, I think you did. And it takes me to a place where... I think now that uh, I want you to kind of detail or in a detailed fashion, tell us about the 12 steps. Mm. It's extremely important that people know that scientifically and otherwise there are studies that there are definite things that they can do or become a part of or be involved in that can help ease some of the trauma and make it more manageable. Tell us about the 12 steps. The 12 steps of uh, AA or NA? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Oh, those are powerful. Right. Uh, yeah, so starting at the beginning, step one, we admit we're powerless over our addiction and life has become unmanageable. That's one of the most powerful steps. Um, mm. I'm starting to feel uncomfortable because one of the things in the rooms is that we do not associate with media. So I'm wondering if I'm breaking any of the traditions by talking about the 12 steps. I don't know. I don't know either. I'll just break it down very simply. So, so it's not in too much detail. Um, yeah, steps one, two, and three are uh, coming to believe in a higher power and turning our will over to it, which is... Uh, very powerful. I honestly struggled on step three for my first year. It took me a long time to do it because uh, I think personally as a victim of, sorry, as a survivor of trauma, <laughs> um, my power was one of the only things I had, right? I fought for it and it was mine. And I didn't want to give it to something that I never seen or <laughs> heard of. So it was really hard for me to get there because living in our own will is often what gets us in trouble. So turning it over to something that we believe in and something we believe in to be good and genuine and honest is honestly a no brainer when you really think about it. Cause that's what we all wanna aspire to is to live that way. Cause when we're in addiction, we're lying, we're cheating, we're manipulating, doing everything to get what we want. So turning it over to something more beautiful and pure is honestly a bit, a bit better. And steps four, five, and six are about doing an inventory. And this is really hard. 
a step nine is honestly one of the most famous ones. You see it on TV all the time, but step four is one of the hardest. Yeah, it truly is. It's a one that a lot of people relapse on because you go into your fears, you go into your traumas, you go into all the resentments, all the reasons that you use is in that step and you have to look at it. Oh my gosh. The first time I did step four, my counselor said, okay, the steps are supposed to keep you sober. And I think that if you don't slow down, <laughs> you might use. So I, I honestly could only write down like a couple resentments on my first step four. And then the second time I got through all of them, but yeah. And then, so you go through all of them and then you read them to your sponsor or you can read them to a chaplain um, and it, you just release it. You release it from yourself and, and the, and then step eight and nine, you make a searching and fearless moral inventory. Nope. No, you make a list of all people you've harmed and become willing to make amends to them. <laughs> I kind of confused with the last and something. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So it, then you make a you make try to make amends to everyone you've hurt. Yeah, reconcile. It's a, it's a long list, probably. And it's it's really powerful because it says unless it can bring harm to yourself or others, because if you're using drugs, chances are you've gotten into contact with some dangerous people. And the 12 steps aren't telling you to go knock on their door <laughs> because that could be really dangerous. So there's other ways to make amends to those kinds of people. And that's something your sponsor or coach can help you with. And then at the, at the end of the steps and step 11 and 12, you continue you continue through meditation and connection um, and you continue to take a moral inventory every single day. You know, one thing that I got for advice was look at the day at the end of the day and think, what did I do good and what could I do better? And, and that's something really powerful that I still try to do every night is think about, and it's not, what did I fail at and how can I not fail? No, it's what did I do good and what can I do better? Cause it's always a, uh, building on strengths. So yeah, the 12 steps are amazing. They're amazing. I think anybody, even if they're not an addict should do them. Yeah. 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 It's, it's like a, a life altering tool and it helps you have a more fresher, realistic perspective on life. I thank you so much for sharing Rose. I want to give you a little breather because I want to show something and I'll have you comment on it. So let's see if we can get it going here. There you go. Oh. oh, there's me. Okay, so a sober coach or a recovery coach assists their clients in their early recovery. They help them set and achieve goals that will benefit their lives and help keep them motivated and push them to achieve those goals. The way that uh, recovery coach is different from a sponsor is that sponsors are 12-step based and help their, their sponsees go through the 12 steps. Sometimes a sponsor will help with other things, but they're not, they don't have to. <laughs> a sober coach can help with the 12 steps if they're asked, but mostly they use other techniques to help 
the individual cope with their addiction and come up with coping strategies and keep them on track in other ways towards their designated goals. Hey, great. So here's the thing, Rose. That was a very touching example of how we can explain something that is real to us and use a comparison. So there's a difference between the sponsor, the therapist, and the coach. Here's a question. How do they all holistically combine together to help someone to actually recover and to gain some semblance of normalcy? Um, that's, that's actually a good question because I've come into that situation a couple times with clients where they have a committee, a team of all of us, me, a counselor, a sponsor, their family, their, uh, their host mom at a recovery house. And sometimes it feels like too many cooks. <laughs> <laughs> but but you know we all just are honest about what we think and whoever is there the longest we often uh lean on them because they yeah. know the client the best yeah and uh you know because I I push a bit you know I'm a coach <laughs> I push but I don't want to push them so far to relapse so if they're if their sponsor says you know this is too much for them right now I say okay fair enough let's come up with something that is a little less extreme and see what we can sort out for the client. And, you know, we, we all just work together and respect each other's roles, you know, cause I'm not, I'm stu I've studied quite a bit of mental health and I've worked in mental health for a long time, but I'm not a, a doctor. <laughs> so I always suggest that they have a professional counselor as well, cause I help them with life stuff. The counselor helps them with trauma, with uh, other mental health issues that they may have on top of their addiction. And the sponsor is really good with the 12 steps and getting into the community, the 12-step community. But there are a lot of clients who refuse to do the 12 steps. They don't feel comfortable. The word God is really uncomfortable for them. So... It's, it's a big dance with a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a lot of movements in between. Uh, fascinating. Um, I'm looking at the information here and I'm fascinated by your work with other people as well who would uh, have struggles with things like schizophrenia, bipolar, borderline personality disorder and addiction. There's a term that's been used a lot these days. And I'm thinking, is it, is it somehow aligned to any of these things when people look at um, trying to create a false sense of identity for themselves because they are not comfortable with who they really are. It's called imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. It's not associated to any of these uh, I should say, mental illnesses that can cause serious challenges for people and they need to find a way out. I've never heard imposter syndrome associated with those. So that's a good question. I know that for, for myself, when I was using, it was, 
it was to control my reality for sure. That's why I was so attracted to cocaine as someone who's tired all the time, yeah. having something that made me feel up and awake and productive was lovely. Um, I'm not sure that's a really tough question. I gotta say, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. I feel uh, with a lot of the individuals that I've worked with that had schizophrenia, a lot of them would abuse meth and heroin. And I feel that it was to get out of their head. A lot of them would even tell that to me. They said, if you lived in my head, why, why on earth would I wanna stay sober? And I said, you know what? I can't even argue with you. Yeah. Um, I don't know what I would do if I was in your reality. I would probably wanna hide too, but when they're on their medication, they, they're fine. So it's choosing between their medication and using <laughs> illegal substances. So it's- Wow. That's a tough one. Yeah. So here's the thing. With regards to uh, your family life and stuff, uh, mm -hmm. how challenging was it for you to, to be able to live up to the expectations and at the same time manage yourself with regards to your recovery? And, and I'm talking about from the family side. How challenging was that for you? In the past or in the present? Uh, first in the past and now in the present. Forgive me, can you repeat the question? <laughs> you said that you had a lot of support from your family, but I can remember you distinctly saying, your mom said to you, hey, Rose, it is time. Mm. You made that decision, but you had to go through a process. Right, right. Balance that process with the expectation of the family mm -hmm. then, and how are you doing it now is it challenging for you oh yes yes it was uh it was very challenging my the fact that my family was ready to give up and it wasn't that they were giving up on me and thinking of it that way was probably not very healthy because it wasn't that they were giving up on me. It was that they were finally choosing themselves. It's that they were saying, you know, I can't handle all these phone calls all the time, you know, from your boss or cops or people saying, I don't know where Rose is. She's just gone. <laughs> like that would be terrifying for a mother to hear. Right. So they were choosing to put themselves first to say, you know what, if you want to live this life, you go live it. So hearing my mom say that after us being so close, even through addiction, we were still very close, was very sobering. And um, living up to her expectations once I got into recovery was very difficult too because she was used to me lying. She was used to me sneaking. She was used to me making mistakes all the time. So she would call me almost every day and just be like, oh, what are you doing? What are you doing? And I'd be saying, oh, I'm, I'm working on my step work or I'm going to a meeting or because the beginning of recovery is very about just recovery. So I didn't have much of a life outside of it back then. And I would just, I could tell that it was because she was worried and I kept trying to tell her, don't be worried, I'm okay. And I, I would get really mad. And once or twice she got jealous of my sponsor because I leaned on my sponsor so much. And I would tell her, you know, you're very important to me, mom, and you know me very well, but she knows a different side of me and it's very important that she's involved. So yeah, living up to the expectations was very difficult, but once my mom and I got through those, those difficult times, 
we're at a place now that she calls me because she wants to say hi, <laughs> or she calls me because she wants to check on my kids. It's not because she's worried. It's not, she's never worried about me anymore, actually. It's a beautiful place to be. Yeah. 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 Wonderful. That's good. That's, that's really amazing. Thank you so much for sharing. I can still feel the passion there, Rose. Appreciate your honesty. In terms of the future for you, Rose, with regards to uh, the work that you're doing and what you are seeking to accomplish with people with regards to the information that you're sharing, mostly from your experience and then your certification, what are the further plans that you're going to put into place? Is there going to be a memoir? Is there going to be a book? Are you going to open an, um, an institution? <laughs> what does the future look like for Rose Chant with regards to what you're currently doing now? Uh, I've thought about writing a book, but there's that voice in my head that says who would read it, right? You know, is it that interesting of a story? So fighting with that part of my brain, um, it might come out one day, but it might not. But I do want to open some sober houses with coaches working in the houses yeah. or adjacent to the houses. And the long-term goal is hopefully a treatment center that has coaches that are assigned to someone as soon as they hit a wait list. Yes. Because the waiting list is such a dangerous place for addicts to be. Mm -hmm. You know, make that choice to make the change, but then they have to wait. Like what? Who would stop using <laughs> if they have to wait? <laughs> so yeah, any of them that are on a wait list are immediately assigned a coach that starts the treatment right away with but I haven't decided quite yet what that will look like, but I know that they need someone to support them immediately. Yeah. And then, yeah. Oh, apologies. Yeah. So that's good. That's really good. Yeah. And a coach for once they leave treatment as well to get them on the right track towards their new life. Because one thing that concerns me the most is when people go through treatment, they do all that work, they get to that great place. And then they're spat out of the treatment center and maybe land in a recovery house. But a lot of recovery houses are just that. They're just a house with sober people in it. And occasionally they get checked on or they'll have a house mom that lives there. But I, I find the life skills really, really important. Yeah. So I want to have the people that go through the treatment center to immediately be working on their life skills. They will get their driver's license or at least started on the process. So a lot of people who get into recovery don't have ID yet. So they'll get started on that process too, or get signed up for school or decide what they want to do with the rest of their beautiful new life. Yeah. You know, so that's, that's kind of the plan. It's in its infancy. That will probably be another 10 or 20 years before that happens. I don't know, but yeah, a lot of people are starting to work on that. I've noticed that uh, life skills is becoming part of the new treatment regime. I'm really excited about it. Yeah, it is. And, and it's especially important now because we, we seem to be living in, a, in an era, basically post-COVID, where so many things that have happened in, in the, the time that we were dealing and managing and, and striving to exist with COVID is kind of spilling over in mm. what we've to do going forward, you know? And, and so I think there are a whole lot of people that need information that's gonna to say to them, hey, look, there's a better way 
there's a newer way that we can do this. And that's how the life skills come into play because you need to be able to learn to manage, first of all, yourself. Mm-hmm. And that help you to deal with what is happening on the outside of you. And as you were speaking, I remember listening to a coach and he was speaking about his main concern was that when he had worked with people and they had overcome some of their challenges, some of their traumas, some of their negative experiences, one of the things that he observed is that they had a tendency to go back into the atmosphere and the places and the the venues that caused them to struggle with what they were struggling with in the first place. Mm. And, And he felt as if, well, you do that and, and all the hard work and the time that we have put into your rehab seems to have just dissipated because what you need to do is to find a change of atmosphere, new mm-hmm. friends, new activities, new places to go, new venues. But how do we convince someone to do that when where they came out from is all that they know? The people, mm-hmm. the venues, the places, the social connections. It might be family, it might be friends or people that they consider to be friends. How do we convince them, hey, you need to make some changes in that area as well? Because if you continue to go back to that, it's gonna do you more harm than good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really tough. It, It needs to be their choice. And then they may need to make that mistake and then come back and realize, you know what, I do have to make that change. I've seen that happen a few times because yeah. you can't force anybody to do anything. Um, but for, for my recovery, that was something that was brought up in treatment when we were planning my aftercare, where I was going to go. They said, you can't go back to Victoria. And then I said, well, where am I going to go? Where am I going to live? And they said, well, we strongly suggest that you move up to Nanaimo and start a new life there. And that really scared me. And I was, I was very adamant that I wasn't going to do it. You know, why would I leave? My family lived in Victoria. My whole life was there. My job was there. Everything was there. My house, my stuff, my cat, everything. And I talked to my grandfather and he, I really respect him. So I think that that might've been a big part of it was that I respect him very, very deeply. And he said, okay, Rose, I know that you can find drugs anywhere you go, but in Victoria, they can find you. Really, you could be walking down the street and run into someone and bam. (laughs) So yeah, him saying that made a big difference. And then, yeah, so I changed my number, moved out of town, just completely started over. And it helped that I didn't have big connections there. I didn't have kids yet, nothing like that. So it really depends on the person and what they're leaving behind but it's honestly safer just to start over and stop hanging out at those places. One saying in the, in recovery is, you know, if you sit in the barber's chair, you're going to get a haircut, you know, you can sit there enough times and just chat with them, but, but eventually you're going to get a haircut, right? So don't go hang out at the bars. Don't hang out with those people. It's just, they don't care about you. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Okay. So, I mean, that's that's a sobering reality. And I'm just checking on comments here and I'm seeing Loretta Package. She says, good afternoon, guys. I'm reading a little bit about Rose. And this is to we all know that there's the work of God. So your accidents is a testimony to someone that they will not give up 
in the same situation. Wow. Wow. There's another one that says, sometimes we don't know the plan God has for us. But go ahead, Rose, and be always willing to tell your story. Wow. So Thank you. You're making an impact, Rose, and a, and a positive and endearing one. And that's powerful. That's warm. That's what we are here for on Andy's personal development in the breakout room. It's not about selling something. It's not about promoting something. It's mm -hmm. about giving you information and content that can say to you, there's a better way to live. You have the opportunity to do better in your life. And this is how you can do it. We're giving you practical, realistic, live sessions, experiences that people would have gone through. And, and Rose epitomizes that in, in the way she shares her passion and her desires. And we really appreciate the comments from Loretta at this time. So we have just about one minute to go, Rose. I'm going to give you the opportunity now to tell people about how they can make contact with you if they want to get um, information on recovery, coaching, the things that you do and if they need for you to advise them, so to speak, uh, how they can make contact with you. Go ahead. Awesome. Uh, if you go to my website at rosechant.com, uh, there should be a link on my work with me page where you can book a discovery call. And on that call, it's completely free and we'll have a nice little chat, find out if we can get along <laughs> uh -huh. and do a small assessment and see if there's anything I can do to help you and your recovery from addiction. Yeah, great. So I have another response that I'm going to, uh, I just responded to. It says, uh, Andy, some people go back to test their strengths. Some made it and some didn't. Uh, and and to, to go back or not to go back it's enough to be strong. So it's, it's different in every human. So I suppose what she's saying is that there are some people who would probably want to put their newfound um, life to a test and mm -hmm. say to themselves, okay, so let me go back to see how it's going to hold up. Some may be strong enough to overcome it, but some may not be. And they have to go back and start all over again. And that's sad. We don't want you to go through that. So what we are saying is, uh, listen to what Rose is saying. <laughs> she's the expert here because <laughs> she's been there, done that. And so we really thank her for being on the show and for sharing such vital information about life skills, how to overcome, how to get into therapy, how to deal with the trauma, and to realize that it, not, it does not really go away. But as time go on and you get the support of family and friends and the different persons that would come on, the professionals, it becomes more easier to manage. And at times they say to us in our coaching profession, when you're willing to do the hard things, things become easier as it goes along, but you gotta start somewhere. So until next time, this is Andy of Andy's Personal Development together with our guest, Rose Chan saying, continue to seek health, happiness, and prosperity. They are the keys to a better life and for you discovering your innate purpose, which God has placed you here for. Do not deny that. Do not separate yourselves from that because that is when you get true fulfillment for being on planet Earth and you make a great ROI on the investment that the universe made in putting you here. So until then, so long.
Godspeed. Shalom. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Godspeed. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> okay, hold on. Hold on there.